Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, hosted by yours truly, Dr. Colby Taylor. And I'm recording this episode on November 1st, 2020. So it's the day after Halloween. And today's episode topic is eating disorders. And really, they're called feeding and eating disorders in the DSM-5. You might be wondering, what are the feeding and eating disorders? Uh, there's pica, rumination disorder, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, the two big ones, anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. We also have binge eating disorder, other specified feeding or eating disorder, and unspecified feeding or eating disorder. So we're going to cover all of these in today's episode with special attention on anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Uh, you, you, with that list, though, you might be wondering, you know, why isn't obesity included? And this was a controversial thing when the DSM-5 came out whether obesity should be included or not. We have ballooning rates of obesity in the United States, especially in the American South where I live. The American Psychiatric uh, Association's justification for not including obesity was that obesity arises from a complex interaction of genetic, physiological, behavioral, and environmental factors. That was their quote. Isn't that the case for all psychological and psychiatric disorders, right? They all are a complex interaction of genetic, physiological, behavioral, and environmental factors. So this is a controversial one. We know that, you know, there are some cases of unavoidable obesity that are not related to mental health, right? Uh, there can be um, hormonal changes um, that can lead to obesity. There can be all sorts of conditions that lead to obesity, and so those would want to be excluded, but what about you know general unhealthy eating habits? Is there a home for that? Especially considering that we know that psychological interventions can be helpful at staving off unhealthy eating habits and unhealthy um, sedentary behavior. So this is an interesting one. We will find as we go through a lot of these eating disorders that obesity is going to be a risk factor for many of them. All right, let's kick things off with the first feeding and eating disorder, which is pica. It's spelled P-I-C-A, and I hear a lot of psychological novices call it pica, sort of like Pikachu, the, the, the Pokemon, uh, but it's not pica. It's not like Pikachu, and it's not like, I don't know how you pronounce the font, P-I-C-A, uh, but this is pronounced pica, and pica involves eating things that aren't food, eating things that aren't nutritious, and this is not just, uh, you know, when, when I was a kid, Sometimes I would uh, chew on the styrofoam coffee cups, and sometimes I would chew it and maybe eat a little bit of the styrofoam coffee cups. You know, kids eat crayons, kids eat um, some crazy things. This is not included in pica. Uh, this has got to be a pattern of uh, eating things that aren't nutritious, that has to extend for at least a month. Some of the most common things ingested are hair, skin, paper, cloth, string, chalk, paint, rocks and pebbles. Um, with hair, it could be part of trichotillomania. With skin, it could be part of excoriation disorder, which we talked about with the obsessive compulsive and related disorders. Um, you cannot diagnose this before the age of two, right? Because infants and toddlers stick non-edible things in their mouth. Um, this is often comorbid with intellectual disability and with autism spectrum disorder. So we will see this um, with ID and with autism. I'll have a, another episode or an, a future episode on autism spectrum disorder. Uh, we've already had one on intellectual disability. So we will see pica with that. 
It's also important to have a blood workup if you have pica because there, you might have low iron levels. You know, you, you've heard cases maybe of uh, pregnant women who eat soil uh, or things that might be high in iron. So there can be medical reasons for pica that need to be um, checked out and need to be excluded when making this diagnosis. Another thing with pica is that people don't realize is, or people often overlook is that pica can be very, very dangerous. Uh, you can get uh, intestinal blockages and obstructions with pica. You can have kidney failure. Uh, you can have liver damage, especially if you're starting to eat things like paint. There, there, there's a show on A&E called My Strange Addiction. And there's somebody that's eaten an entire mattress and somebody that, um, you know, has pica for paint. And this can be deadly. This is um, it's a serious disorder. Let's transition to another feeding and eating disorder, which is rumination. And we might have talked about the term rumination before in this podcast when we talked about uh, depressive disorders, right? So uh, to ruminate in that sense was to chew over in your mind uh, an event or a thought over and over and over again. Uh, we talked about it with anxiety disorders too. Rumination in this sense is the literal sense of the word. Uh, rumination comes from the Latin for to chew over. And here, rumination is the regurgitation of food. And it's the regurgitation of food that's not related to nausea, disgust, or another eating disorder. And it doesn't involve retching. So in this case, it's usually uh, children or individuals with intellectual disabilities. Uh, intellectual disability is going to be a huge risk factor or comorbid condition for um, rumination disorder. And again, it's going to involve chewing food, swallowing it, and then spitting that food back out. So that is rumination disorder. Um, another sort of related disorder is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. And this one's written out avoidance slash restrictive food intake disorder. And this is avoidance of food. And it's usually a lack of interest in food based on sensory characteristics um, that can manifest as food refusal or can manifest as choking or gagging on the food. Now, this is not developmentally appropriate picky eating, although you will see picky eating, like the term uh, used sometimes to describe people with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, but a lot of kids are picky eaters. It seems like uh, I've encountered so many kids that will only eat um, chicken nuggets, macaroni and cheese, and maybe pizza, a handful of foods, uh, which might not qualify for this disorder because you're getting all the major food groups there, right? Uh, with something like pizza, you're getting dairy, uh, you're getting uh, grain or bread, um, you're getting protein maybe, you're getting a vegetable. So you're getting a lot of different food groups there. You're probably not going to um, starve for lack of nutrition. Um, so this is usually a little bit more severe, and it's kind of cool to watch people work with, uh, watch therapists work with avoidant restrictive food intake disorder um, because they might have a kitchen on site. I know that Labonner Children's Hospital here in Memphis uh, has a treatment center that has a kitchen on site, and they might test things with different textures to try to get kids to eat it. Um, I know I've encountered kids before that would eat chicken nuggets, but wouldn't eat chicken eat the breading around the chicken nuggets, and they take it off. And so they would work with the kids to finally eat chicken nuggets with the breading on, something like that. Or I know people that are uh, kids that don't like wet texture, so they wouldn't eat something like cereal with milk. Or they wouldn't eat something like soup or SpaghettiOs or even macaroni and cheese with the cheese sauce. So a therapist would work on exposure to these sorts of foods uh, to where they're eventually tolerated. Um, this one is also going to be comorbid with um, autism spectrum disorder and intellectual disability.
All right, now let's sort of shift gears and talk about the two big eating disorders, which are anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. I'm going to start with anorexia. Uh, anorexia nervosa, uh, etymologically, so word-wise, means without appetite. And the nervosa is nervousness. So it literally means nervousness without appetite. It comes from the Greek for orexis, which is appetite. And with anorexia nervosa uh, and bulimia nervosa, they both have nervosa in the name, we're going to find that they're highly, highly comorbid with um, a lot of different conditions, but especially anxiety disorders. In fact, I've seen estimates that people um, with anorexia nervosa and with bulimia nervosa have comorbidity rates of upwards of 95%. So it's very unlikely that you'll be diagnosed with just anorexia nervosa or with just bulimia nervosa. A lot of times there's comorbid conditions like anxiety disorders or depressive disorders or substance use disorders. Those are some of the, the big uh, three families that we see comorbidly diagnosed. And disclaimer up front, um, I'm not an expert on eating disorders. Uh, it's, it's an area that I don't have very much experience at all in working with. Um, so that's a disclaimer as I start to talk about eating disorders. So anorexia nervosa, uh, it's characterized by significantly low weight, uh, an intense fear of gaining weight. Again, with that comorbid anxiety, um, a lot of people with anorexia will report high, high levels of anxiety in thinking about eating uh, or before eating or during eating. Um, it's also characterized by body image concerns. So undue influence of body weight on self-esteem, or they might have lack of insight into the seriousness of low weight. We have two types with anorexia. We have the restricting type, which involves dieting, fasting, and even excessive exercise. And we have the binge eating slash purging type, which might involve vomiting, use of laxatives, diuretics, or enemas. And crossover between the two is not uncommon. You can go from restricting type to binge eating purging type, and then back to restricting type. We do see some crossover. We'll also see crossover between anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Anyways, a lot of people think that uh, binge eating and purging is only associated with bulimia. They think that's the central feature of bulimia. And we find that that's really, it's not true. You can have binge eating and purging with anorexia nervosa. Really, the big uh, distinguishing factor between anorexia and bulimia is going to be significantly low body weight. That significantly low body weight we talked about just a second ago. That is associated with anorexia. Uh, behaviorally, right, with binging and purging or restricting, you're going to see a lot of the same symptoms uh, with anorexia and with bulimia. So what are these symptoms that I just talked about? Well, we have fear of weight gain that doesn't go away even when weight goes down. So it's, in a way, sort of a cognitive distortion. You have this fear of weight gain, and even when your weight goes down and you're watching numbers kind of tick down on the scale, uh, that fear doesn't really alleviate or resolve. Uh, there's also concern about certain body parts, again, body image, particularly the body parts of the stomach, uh, the butt, and the thighs. There's frequent looking in the mirror and frequent weighing behaviors. Um, there's amenorrhea, uh, which is absence of a period. And this actually, up until the DSM-5, was a diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa. But they removed amenorrhea in the DSM-5 because there was a subset of individuals they found that had clearly had anorexia nervosa but never experienced amenorrhea. So it's no longer required for the diagnosis. We also have cold intolerance. Oftentimes people, these people will present at your office um, maybe with a hoodie on in the middle of summer with long sleeves uh, because they're cold. They lack the body heat and the insula or body fat and the insulation uh, to keep their body heat in. 
Um, also with wearing a long sleeve or hoodie, sometimes that covers up uh, the back of their hand, the dorsal side of their hand. Uh, and the dorsal side of the hand uh, sometimes will have a callus or a scar um, from attempted uh, gagging, uh, again, with that binging and purging subtype. Um, you might see bradycardia, uh, which is lower heart rate. We talked about heart rate a little bit in the last episode uh, as being lower resting heart rate as being associated uh, with some of the behavioral disorders. Um, uh, you might see stringy hair or lanugo, um, which is kind of a fine downy hair that covers the body. I, I talk about stringy hair or lanugo in my developmental psychology classes because a lot of infants are born with lanugo. Uh, and this is another thing that can be covered up, again, if somebody's wearing a, a, you know, a long sleeve shirt or a hoodie. And again, scars or calluses on the dorsal side, the back of the hand, uh, which again can be indicative of uh, gagging and purging. We are going to find both of these disorders, anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, are going to be way more common in females and males. Anorexia is 10 times more common in females than males. It's more prevalent in developed countries, and it's more prevalent among white females. We also find it's more prevalent among models. Uh, there's been studies that have shown that uh, almost 70% of Playboy centerfolds might meet for anorexia nervosa, uh, and upwards of half of Miss USA contestants might meet for anorexia nervosa. So modeling, being an elite athlete, is associated with anorexia. The prevalence is about 1 in 200 young females. There is elevated risk of suicide, and the mortality is about 5% over a decade and 20%, 20% over a lifetime. A lot of people don't consider anorexia to be a deadly disorder, but it is. Uh, and we know that one of the indicators of deadliness uh, one of the, is comorbid substance use. That especially um, does not have a good prognosis. Uh, but even then, the mortality rate is still really high without the substance use. The treatment for anorexia is multimodal, um, which means that it's going to involve uh, a bunch of different fronts, a, def a bunch of different uh, methods, um, and it's going to have various levels. So it might start out as an inpatient level for somebody that's um, very acutely underweight and then progress to outpatient um, as uh, the person stabilizes and starts to put on weight. Uh, with nutrition, we aim, aim for gradual weight gain, which is about two to three pounds per week. We don't want somebody to put on a bunch of weight all at once uh, because it can shock the body and be unhealthy. And also psychologically, we talked about one of the, the biggest fears of somebody with anorexia uh, is putting on, uh, putting on weight very quickly um, because of that cognitive distortion that they have. And if they see themselves put on you know, 10 pounds in the first week, uh, that's starting to uh, play to that cognitive distortion. So we aim for gradual weight gain of two to three pounds per week. It's also more sustainable and probably healthier weight gain. Uh, we see family therapy uh, used with anorexia. So bringing family members in, educating family members on what anorexia is, how can you support your loved one and their eating decisions. Uh, we have behavioral therapy. You might even see with younger children sticker charts for anorexia. Uh, there might be a, a token economy or something set up to encourage healthy eating behaviors and discourage some of the restrictive behaviors. Cognitive therapy is going to address some of the cognitive distortions we talked about uh, related to body image and related to weight gain. And we also have the use of SSRIs. Uh, but with SSRIs, um, it's important to realize that there can be some dietary side effects with SSRIs. 
right? In some instances, uh, SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, can decrease diet, which we don't want with anorexia, or they can increase weight gain. And if there's some bloating with SSRI use, that again can play to that cognitive distortion. So it, it might not be your best choice there. And also it can be really difficult to dose SSRIs with somebody uh, that's severely underweight. And so there's special consideration that needs to be given to how it's going to be metabolized in somebody that's severely underweight, especially somebody that might already have compromised liver and kidney functioning due to anorexia. We do find that there are higher rates of anorexia among people of Protestant backgrounds. We don't know. There's some theories that, you know, um, people of, of Protestant backgrounds uh, might be more rigid uh, in their, their beliefs, um, and that rigidity might carry over uh, to food restriction in some ways. Uh, we also know that people that work in the food service industry, uh, whether you work for a supermarket chain or whether you work as a waiter or waitress, um, are more at risk for having anorexia nervosa. The DSM-5 encourages uh, classifying the severity of uh, anorexia using the World Health Organization categories for thinness in adults. And these categories involve body mass index, BMI. And remember, anorexia nervosa is being significantly underweight. So the mild category is going to be greater than or equal to 17 kilograms per meter squared, uh, or BMI of seven, or, you know, greater than or equal to 17. Uh, moderate is going to be a BMI between 16 and 16.99. Severe is going to be a BMI between 15 and 16, 15.99. And extreme is a BMI below 15. So those levels of severity, again, come from the World Health Organization, uh, but the DSM-5 encourages using those to classify severity. Okay, let's transition to bulimia nervosa. So bulimia nervosa, again, there's going to be overlap between bulimia and anorexia, but bulimia is not going to involve that significantly low body weight. Individuals with bulimia are typically normal or overweight um, in weight. The prevalence is 1 to 1.5% of young females. We're going to see the average age of onset between 16 and 19 years of age. Uh, so it peaks in late, late adolescence and early adulthood. The mortality rate is going to be less than that of anorexia nervosa, but it's still going to be quite high at 2% over a decade. Risk factors for bulimia are going to include childhood obesity, um, having early or precocious puberty, and childhood abuse. We're also going to see childhood abuse with anorexia be a risk factor. I failed to mention that. PTSD is going to be another one of those comorbid disorders with uh, bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa. Bulimia nervosa is characterized by repeated binge eating, and binge eating is less than two hours per episode. It's not all day grazing, it's discrete binge episodes. And also repeated compensatory behaviors to prevent weight gain. So this can involve vomiting, which I think 70 to 90% of people with bulimia present with vomiting. Laxative use, which I think is about 20% of people with bulimia. Use of diuretics fasting, and also excessive exercise, which I think is under-researched as part of bulimia nervosa, has to last at least three months. So binging and then purging over Thanksgiving or Christmas is not going to meet criteria for bulimia nervosa. Um, and your self-evaluation is unduly influenced by your body shape and by your weight. Physiologically, you might present with marks or calluses on the back side of your hand, like we talked about with anorexia, again, because that might be how um, you purge. 
You might have complaints of acid reflux, again, because a majority of people with bulimia are going to purge using vomiting. And with you know, stomach acid due to the vomiting, um, you might have this moth-eaten teeth um, appearance uh, where the enamel of your teeth has kind of been ripped away from the acidity of vomiting. Bulimia nervosa is comorbid with anxiety, depression, substance use, and personality disorders, which I'm going to dedicate an episode to personality disorders um, in the next couple of weeks, uh, especially borderline personality disorder. Like with anorexia, treatment is going to be multimodal and involve multiple levels. We might see incorporation of an eating diary where you mention what you ate, how many calories uh, were involved with what you ate, again, to, to sort of give us better insight into your binge eating behaviors. We might see behavioral therapy, cognitive therapy, interpersonal therapy. We might see exposure plus response prevention. There's more and more research that's coming out that says bulimia nervosa is actually very similar to obsessive compulsive disorder. And you have this compulsion to purge uh, that's very, very similar to OCD. Uh, and so you might see exposure plus response prevention um, where you eat something and then we prevent the response of the purging behavior. Um, interpersonal therapy, family therapy, psychoeducation. So reviewing the effectiveness of purging and side effects of purging, because a lot of times people are unaware that purging is not really a, a great way to get rid of calories. It's not really effective. And obviously there can be some permanent and damaging side effects associated with it. Uh, we might have planned eating. Uh, where eating is sort of regimented uh, instead of, um, you know, impulsively eating. Uh, you, you have meals that are pre-apportioned and planned out. Um, and that way things can't really get out of hand with uh, binge eating episodes. Um, SSRIs uh, might also be used to treat bulimia like with anorexia. But there are those special considerations um, about the side effects of appetite and weight gain that can be associated with SSRIs. In talking with people that um, treat uh, eating disorders, and again, that's not something that I do, um, but they say that they're fighting an uphill battle due to all this misinformation that's on the internet about eating disorders, especially about bulimia. Um, you have these blogs and journals and subreddits that uh, talk about effective purging habits. A lot of this stuff is, is just simply not true and it's dangerous. And so when you have, you know, a 17-year-old teenage girl that presents to you with bulimia and they have all of this information um, from a, a website, a blog, or something like that uh, on, on purging behaviors, uh, the therapists are having to, to combat that information uh, with facts of their own. Again, that's the psychoeducation piece uh, that goes along with treating uh, bulimia nervosa. Okay, one last eating disorder that I want to talk about, and that's binge eating disorder. In binge eating disorder, uh, in, involves eating in a discrete period of time, which is also defined as two hours, just like um, with bulimia nervosa, uh, an amount of food that is definitely larger than what most people would eat in a similar period of time under similar circumstances. And you feel like you have a lack of control over your eating during this episode. Uh, and you might even eat uh, until after you're uncomfortably full. Or you might even eat when you're not physically hungry. Uh, you, it, this does not involve the purging component of bulimia nervosa. And again, this has got to be a repeated pattern of binge eating. This is not just a single episode. It has to occur on average at least once a week for three months. So this is not your 5,000 calories that you might eat for Thanksgiving meal or something like that, or um, eating a bunch of Halloween candy uh, 
all at once. It's not a binge eating disorder thing. It's got to be a pattern of these behaviors. Uh, speaking of binge eating uh, disorder, I wanted to mention a sort of a trivia fact on a, a famous Memphian Elvis Presley and how many calories per day he was purported to be eating before his death. You know, the, the average adult eats somewhere around 2,000, 2,500 calories per day. On a day like Thanksgiving, right, we might double that or even triple that, which is kind of rare. Elvis was purported to be eating up to 100,000 calories a day, 100,000 calories per day uh, in the months before he died. I don't even know how that's possible, uh, but that's a trivia fact that always, um, I don't know, shocks me. Uh, and I guess it relates to binge eating disorder. Anyways, that's it for this episode of The Abnormal Psychologist. We have an empty mailbag. If you have mailbag questions or episode requests, send them to me at ctaylo41 at cb.edu. Until the next episode, take care and stay well.